you want to open your Bibles to Matthew chapter 18, Matthew 18, we'll begin in verse 21. If you have a, if you have one of the pew Bibles, if you need one of those, it's on page 1,527, 1,527. So Matthew chapter 18, verse 21. While you're turning there, I'll, I'll remind you that uh, when I did an awful lot of preaching here a number of years ago, that we worked, we were working our way through Matthew. This is um, the continuation of that series. <laughs> and we should finish around the year 2038, so mark your calendars for that. Matthew, an apostle of the Lord Jesus Christ and a witness of the things of which he writes, writes this to the church. Then Peter came to Jesus and asked, Lord, how many times shall I forgive my brother when he sins against me? Up to seven times. Jesus answered, I tell you not seven times, but 77 times. Therefore, the kingdom of heaven is like a king who wanted to settle accounts with his servants. As he began the settlement, a man who owed him 10,000 talents was brought to him. Since he was not able to pay... The master ordered that he and his wife and his children and all that he had be sold to repay the debt. The servant fell on his knees before him. Be patient with me, he begged, and I will pay back everything. The servant's master took pity on him, canceled the debt, and let him go. But when that servant went out, he found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred denarii. He grabbed him and began to choke him. Pay back what you owe me, he demanded. His fellow servant fell to his knees and begged him, be patient with me and I will pay you back. But he refused. Instead, he went off and had the man thrown into prison until he could pay the debt. When the other servants saw what had happened, they were greatly distressed and went and told their master everything that had happened. Then the master called the servant in. You wicked servant, he said. I canceled all that debt of yours because you begged me to. Shouldn't you have had mercy on your fellow servant just as I had on you? In anger, his master turned him over to the jailers to be tortured until he should pay back all he owed. This is how my heavenly father will treat each of you unless you forgive your brother from the heart. Let me pray for us. Father in heaven, we ask humbly that you would open your word up to us and open us up to your word, that that we might behold the light of the glory of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Please bless us to that end. In Jesus' name, amen. We live in an age where, where people are, tri- are striving for significance. We, we, we want to feel like we count. We want to feel like we matter. Now, this isn't all that new. I mean, ever since the creation of man, people have struggled both with inflated egos and feelings of doubt and, and insignificance. But in the West, in the last 50 years especially, there's been intense study and, and resources dedicated to alerting people to the fact that they ought to feel insignificant, and then charging us to take care of that problem. I mean, entire industries have been created around the issues of self-esteem and self-worth. Nowadays, to keep up with the Joneses, you don't need two cars, two and a half kids. You need two midlife crises and 2.5 therapists. Now, as with all things human, there is confusion and contradiction in the public thinking. You know, we want to be significant, but we don't want to be accountable. We want to be able to do whatever we want to whomever we want, but we don't want the emotional baggage that comes when we actually do whatever we want to whomever we want and hurt them. We scream at God that we are somebody. And then we get frustrated when God actually treats us like somebody. I think this is evident in the current thinking on hell and punishment. I recently participated in a debate on hell and the love of God. And my opponent argued that he could not fathom that God, a God of love, would actually condemn people for sins committed. I responded that God 
grants to us the privilege of being morally significant beings who make morally significant decisions. He responded that, well, that there are repercussions in this life for wrongs committed, and hell is probably best thought of as just the mess that we make of our lives in the here and now. I questioned to him whether that actually accounts for all the evil in the world. Are there not victims of sin and evil that didn't have it coming, who were relatively innocent? If we can do whatever we want, to whomever we want, without any concept of reprisal or justice? What does that make of us and the moral universe? He responded, you know, my God is just too big for that, and and he will just forgive. God will just forgive. Really? He'll just forgive. You know, everyone wants to be forgiven in, in, in our hearts, We know that our decisions matter. We know that there will be a reckoning. And and, and there has to be a reckoning if we are true moral agents before a moral and just God. Uh, We we feel the moral obligation and and the weight of guilt in our hearts when we transgress God and when we sin against other people and hurt them. Unless our hearts are hard and our consciences are all but destroyed, we, we long to hear the words. We We need to hear the words, I forgive you from those whom we have hurt. Most of all, I think we long to hear the words and we need to hear the words from God. I forgive you. We all expect God to forgive. Or maybe we just hope that God will forgive. But why? We all want God to forgive us. But do we know what we're actually asking for when we seek forgiveness from God? Does God just forgive? Is that even possible? Is that even possible for God to just forgive? Is it even possible for us to just forgive? What does that even mean? And if God does forgive us, does that have any impact on his expectations of how we're supposed to behave? In our text today, Jesus explains how forgiveness actually works, how much it actually costs, and how much it is to impact those who have been forgiven. So let's take a look again at this at this text. The, the, the background of it is, if you remember from five years ago, okay, we we pick up the story on the heels of Jesus teaching on church discipline. And we, we, we find in Matthew 18 that church discipline is God's provision, it's Christ's provision for the church for maintaining purity. And it's an instrument of sanctification in our lives to keep us holy. And Jesus concludes in verse 20 with a statement that where two or three gather in his name, that they have the right to execute the, the final and last resort of church discipline, which is to remove an unrepentant sinner from fellowship in the church. And and they can do so, in fact, they're instructed to do so with the very authoritative presence of Jesus himself. It is it is as though he himself is the one who is removing that person from fellowship in the church. So at this point, Peter goes to the Lord and he asks him, as we find, as we pick up in our text, well, let's just read the first two verses again of Matthew 18, verse 21 and 22. Uh, Peter came to Jesus and asked, Lord, well, how many times shall I forgive my brother when he sins against me? Up to seven times? Jesus answered, I tell you, not seven times, but 77 times. How many times am I supposed to forgive? You've told us we're supposed to forgive. You've told us that, that, that the Lord cares and, he, he, and, and God pursues sinners. How many times am I actually supposed to forgive? And, and, and his best guess, I mean, Peter knows his audience. This is Jesus, after all. He's incredibly compassionate. So, so, so I'm not going to lowball him on this one. I'm going to highball him. I'm going to say seven times. Am I supposed to forgive seven times? Even up to seven times, Peter asks. I mean, this is this is like the outer limits of generosity, isn't it? Seven times. I mean, seven, isn't that the biblical number of completeness? Isn't that like like three, the magic number, times two plus one? It's seven times. I mean, that, that's forever. That's a lot. In rabbinical lore, seven was 
over the top when it came to forgiveness. And so, 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 so Peter offers up seven times. He's better than the rabbis. Seven goes above and beyond. A demonstration of probably his own commitment to compassion. I mean, he's been running around Jesus. He knows what to say. Jesus responds, of course, in typical jaw-dropping fashion. I don't say seven times. Probably his disciples when he said that. I don't say seven times. They're thinking, because seven, that's a lot. No, I say to you 77 times, or maybe 70 times seven in, in your translations. Translation issue there. But, but, but whichever one it is, the case is the same. It's a ridiculous number. The escalation from 7 to 77 is way over the top. Jesus tells his disciples that you are to be as extravagant in forgiving as some of the old people in the Old Testament were in taking vengeance. If you want to check out Genesis 4.24 there, I think that's what Jesus is alluding to. You can do that later, though. Later. I mean, this is the language of hyperbole 77 times. Who could keep track of that? 77 times of forgiveness? 77 times where I have to say, I forgive you? You you can't tally that, can you? And Jesus, Jesus would say, no, you don't. Because the point is, if you're keeping track, if you're keeping a tally, you're not forgiving. You're not forgiving. How many times are you supposed to forgive one another? As many times as it takes. There isn't a number. Well, what's forgiveness? What, what is it even to forgive someone? If you were to look it up in a dictionary or maybe you could borrow a Greek lexicon from one of our pastors, you would find that forgiveness means to, to send away or to let go. Well, that's not terribly helpful. How do I send away sins? What, what does it mean to let go? What, what does this mean in real life? And it was probably just as confusing to the disciples. So Jesus does what Jesus always did when people were confused. He told them a story. And here's his story. The king and the debt. So we're going to read the first three, the next three verses, verses 23 through 25. Therefore, the kingdom of heaven is like a king who wanted to settle accounts with his servants. As he began the settlement, a man who owed him 10,000 talents was brought to him. Since he was not able to pay, the master ordered that he and his wife and his children and all that he had be sold to repay the debt. Okay, that's the start of the story. If you want to know what life in the kingdom is like, Jesus says it's like this. There was this king who had a bunch of servants, and one of the servants owed the king 10,000 talents. Now, that might not sound like a lot to you because we don't deal with talents, and 10,000, I mean, who knows how many 10,000 is if you're talking about talents, but it's a huge number. It's a ridiculous number. How could such a servant have such a debt? How could he possibly owe 10,000 talents? Well, the typical practice of the day in the ancient Near East was that the servants of the king, at least the high-up servants, they would handle the finances of the realm. Because the personal treasury of the king is the personal treasury of the nation. And a king paid for everything out of his personal treasury, which was the treasury of the country. Somehow, probably through mismanagement, probably through embezzlement, I suppose, one of the servants owed the king 10,000 talents. I don't know how. I don't know how. But in Jesus' day, consider this. A, A denarius was an acceptable day's wage for a laborer. You work all day, you get a denarius. A talent is another unit that was the highest monetary standard. And in equivalent values, one talent would represent what a laborer would hope to gain or earn in two life, or I'm sorry, in half a lifetime. So he works his whole life. He has two talents to show for it. But the servant doesn't owe just one talent. He owes the king 10,000, literally a myriad. Strictly calculated, if it was in gold, in today's dollars, the debt would be about 12 billion dollars but 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 that's doing math again where we're not supposed to be doing math the point is not to do that kind of arithmetic jesus is speaking in hyperbole in terms about a ridiculous debt a a myria is the largest numeral for which a greek term exists and a talent was the largest monetary unit so when the two are combined together the effect is the same as we would talk about man i owe a bazillion dollars and so if if we were telling jesus Jesus would say, there was a king who had a servant, and that, and that servant owed him bazillions and bazillions of dollars. 
Just totally unpayable. Remember, Jesus is making this story up to explain to his disciples what forgiveness really is. And right off the bat, we learn a couple things. First, sin creates a debt. I think we all recognize this intuitively. If someone sins against me, he incurs a moral debt to me and and also to God because of the offense. I have the right to collect on that debt because it's owed me. It's just a basic principle of justice also that sin creates a debt and that the debt is proportionate to the offense. Remember in, in Old Testament law, an eye for an eye. So that which you commit is kind of is supposed to be proportionate to what you owe. Now, don't we often say, though, forgive and forget? Isn't forgiveness actually just forgetting that a wrong was done against me? Let me suggest to you that forgetting or minimizing sin is denial. It's not forgiving. And in the Bible, for forgiveness of sins to occur, at least before him, God requires life, shed blood. We have to repent. To forgive is not to just forget, but first and foremost, it's to refuse to hold a grudge. It's to forgive. To forgive is to refuse to cherish bitterness. I will not harbor desire to harm or harbor a a secret desire to exact revenge. Nothing need more be done to balance the scales when we forgive. And then you can forget after that. But it's not first and foremost forgetting. There's a difference. Forgive, then forget. We also learn that life in the kingdom is characterized by radical forgiveness of radical debt. When when asked how his disciples are to forgive, Jesus speaks of a king who is owed a ridiculous debt, a debt that cannot possibly be quantified in reality. It's like he's making it up because he was making it up. But a parable is a made-up story that reflects a true reality. And the true reality is is that sinners owe a ridiculous, fantastic debt to God. Yet Jesus says that this is what life in the kingdom is like. In so doing, he returns to the theme of the kingdom of God that he preached on over and over again. Perhaps Jesus, I don't know, maybe he noticed that Peter was trying to go above and beyond. And, 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 And Peter probably was. But when Jesus is no, not seven times, but 77 times, he was looking at Peter and he was addressing something that, that, that such generosity cannot come from yourself. It can't be faked. But it has to be the work of God in your life because this is the kind of God that we worship and serve. He is a God who forgives ridiculous debts and he asks you to forgive ridiculous debts as well. We'll talk about how God does that here in a moment. Look at the next two verses in verse 26 and 27. So the servant owes the debt, and then he comes before the king, and he's found out. He, <laughs> he's busted. The servant fell on his knees before him. Be patient with me, he begged, and I will pay back everything. Verse 27. The servant's master took pity on him, canceled the debt, and let him go. Now, the servant is absolutely desperate at this point. He knows that he's in way over his head. There's no possible way that he can work this off. The strong imagery of falling down, he prostrates himself before the king. It shows just how desperate he was. And the pledge of the desperate man is ridiculous. Let me go. I'll pay you back everything. What, how? Are you going to go get a job for somebody else and rip him off in another nation? It's impossible. You can't do it. You can't pay this debt back. Remember, he owes a bazillion dollars. A bazillion dollars. That's a lot. And that's the point of the number. We're talking fantasy money here. We're talking like monopoly money. Bill Gates, Paul Allen type money. You can't pay them back if you steal everything that they own. And in doing so, or, or I'm sorry, the, the king forgives him, though. The king forgives him in spite of this, in spite of this ridiculous number. And in doing so, the mercy of the king is magnified next to the foolishness of this rash pledge. Now, this would have surprised the audience, would have surprised the hearers, the ones to whom Jesus was speaking, the disciples, should surprise us as readers. 
I mean, we would assume that the king would see through the false bravado of the servant. He can't pay you back. Are you kidding me? He can't pay you back. There's no way that he can repay in time. See, the king's decision obviously is not based on calculation of possibilities of repayment. No, it comes from a heart going out. Compassion, right? Isn't that what the text says? The servant's master took pity on him. He had compassion. He was moved from within. It's a quality in the Gospels that we see characteristic of Jesus over and over and over again. He's moved by compassion, so he acts. He's moved by compassion, so he acts. The king's actions give us a perfect picture of God who shows grace and mercy to undeserving sinners. We see something about the motivation for God's mercy here, or or forgiveness, and it's mercy. That's why God forgives mercy. When when God forgives sin, there's no calculation attached to it. God's not trying to win friends and allies. He forgives because of what is in himself, mercy, not because of what is in you, merit or demerit. You understand this? God's forgiveness of us, God's forgiveness of sin is prompted entirely by what is in him, And it's not at all related to what is in us. Therefore, God's motivation to forgive has absolutely nothing to do with the magnitude or the size or the nature of our sin. You can never, ever out-sin God's forgiveness. You can't do it. You can never shock God into inactivity. Well, man, I was going to forgive you, but did you have to do that? I, I can't. No, that's impossible. That is impossible to do. When mercy is the motivation of forgiveness, then we recognize that God is not doing a bean counting exercise with our sin. But we find out something else. And the lesson of this parable, I think, runs counterintuitive to contemporary sensibilities. God does not, and he cannot, just forgive. You see, the the servant in the story here isn't just a household servant like a maid or a cook. No, he's probably, he has to be a steward or a satrap or or a regional governor. In the ancient Near East, the emperor paid for all public works out of his personal funds. And this, this servant, this governor, squandered such a huge amount that now the king's ability to govern is at risk. That's a ridiculous amount of money. How is he going to do his job now? And let's be clear on this. When the king forgives the debt, where did that debt go? It wasn't an abstract debt, paper debt. It was real money owed. And so when the king forgives the debt, the debt doesn't just dissipate into the cosmos. Oh, that's okay. No big deal. I really didn't have that money anyway. Who pays the debt? This is the audience participation time. The king. The king pays the debt. How does he do it? He pays it out of his own funds. He, in in the bookkeeping, because that's what the king's doing here, he's doing bookkeeping, he's got to balance it. It's a loss to him, and it's a real loss. The king says, I forgive you the debt, but in so doing, what does he do? He pays the debt. The king pays the debt. Forgiveness is always costly. It's Always costly. Remember, this this parable, it's a made-up story that tells us something true about reality. And, And Jesus told this parable to teach his disciples about the nature of forgiveness. The king did not just forgive. The king paid the debt. He had to. That's how finances work. I'm often asked, just as I was in the debate, and I see the question asked, why doesn't God just forgive? I mean, he's God. Isn't God big enough to just forgive? The question is wrong-headed from the outset because the last being in the universe who could just forgive is God. The Lord is the creator and the judge of the universe. He is holy. He is just. His character establishes the very basis for morality and justice in the cosmos. God maintains the moral fabric of the universe. What we call justice and righteousness 
Those are actually the attributes of God. And he cannot deny himself. He will not deny himself. Proverbs 17.15 tells us something very, very significant about this God and how he governs. Proverbs 17.15 says, He who justifies the wicked and he who condemns the righteous. See, these are travesties of justice. He who justifies the wicked and he who condemns the righteous are both an abomination to the Lord. They are detestable to him. They run totally contrary to who he is. God cannot declare righteous the unrighteous. And he will not, will not condemn the righteous. For the Lord to just forgive without any punishment, without any retribution, without any balancing of the scales of justice would be an absolute abomination to him. It would tear at the very moral fabric of the universe. God has never, ever just forgiven. God has never pretended that sin didn't matter or that sin doesn't count or doesn't happen really. God cannot do that. He will not do that. God cannot and will not coexist with sin. He must devour sin. He must judge sin. That's who he is. Why can't God just forgive? When we say this, we're really asking why can't God just pretend I didn't do it? Well, that'd be fine if you wanted to be a morally insignificant and irrelevant being. But that is precisely what we are not. We are not that. We are moral agents before God. And that is made clear from creation. It's in our DNA. God created us to be image bearers, representatives of him. You see, you matter and you matter in the most significant ways and your decisions matter and they matter in the most significant ways. What you do counts and it counts throughout the cosmos. The small things you do and the big things you do. God is there, the moral judge of the universe. He sees it, he feels it, and God will be God and he will be judge. What you do counts. To illustrate this, I think we need to flip over to Romans 3 really quickly. Romans chapter 3. I'm going to begin reading in verse 21. The first 20 verses of Romans, it describes the depravity and the hopelessness of man. All people are thoroughly lost in sin. There's really not one aspect of humanity that merits any favor before God at all. Even the law that was given by this good, just God, and it is a good law, law it's not terribly helpful to us in terms of keeping us from breaking it. It only highlights what sin is, and in so doing, it actually increases our guilt. And the result is what one would expect when a holy God confronts sin, judgment, condemnation, and death. Verse 21, though, but now a righteousness from God apart from the law has been made known to which the law and the prophets testify. So, so there's a but there. All is not lost. God has intervened in time, space, history to reveal his saving righteousness. He's not going to do it through works of the law, though. Rather, he's revealing his saving righteousness through the gospel. Paul wrote in chapter one of Romans, that he was not ashamed of the gospel because it's a power of God for the salvation of all who believe, for the Jew first and then for the Gentile. Verse 22, this righteousness comes from God or this righteousness from God comes through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. And there's no difference for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified freely by his grace through the redemption that came by Jesus Christ. So the saving righteousness of God is manifest. That is, it's now available through faith in Christ. Recall the context of Romans. Utter, universal sin, depravity, judgment, condemnation, death. But now you can be saved by believing in Jesus. Well, how does this work? Verse 23, Paul recaps the human dilemma. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. We've been lost. We've been cut off from the glory of God. We're fundamentally incapable of glorifying him. We are all at heart idolaters. But, verse 24, we are justified freely by grace through the redemption that came by Christ. Those who believe in Jesus are justified. That is, they are declared righteous at the bar of God's holy justice. God looks on you, and in the final analysis, he says this, you are not guilty. You are righteous. 
We are forgiven. This declaration is a gift of grace from God. But he's not just making stuff up. He doesn't look at you and say, you know, you believe in my son, you're righteous when you're really not. And he doesn't pretend that you didn't do the things that you did or thought the things that you thought or were the people that you were. No, he declares you righteous on the basis of something real. Remember, this declaration of righteousness, this forgiveness, it is not a costless gift. It is a costly gift. How does it come? It is paid for by Jesus. That's the point of Paul saying that it's through the redemption that is available in Jesus. Redemption. He buys us back. He purchases us out of the slave market. This gift was not conjured up out of nothing either. God does not deny himself. Remember, God does not justify the wicked. He does not condemn the righteous. Doing that would be an abomination. This gift is legitimately bought by Jesus Christ. Well, how? The next verse is really helpful. And this demonstrates why God can't just forgive. God presented him, Jesus, as a sacrifice of atonement, a propitiation. God puts forward Jesus to turn away the real wrath that sin has accrued. That's what sacrifice of atonement or propitiation means. And we, he, he, this comes to us, we access it through faith in his blood. That is, we believe that when Jesus went to the cross, God did something on our behalf and then God raised him up from the dead for his life and for our salvation. And then notice the next sentence. God did this to demonstrate his justice because in his forbearance, he had left the sins committed beforehand unpunished. God takes the initiative And he does so because in the past, he had passed over former sins. What does that mean? It means that there was no real punishment for sin that was going on when he forgave something or someone before Jesus came. That's what the former sins or the the sins that came beforehand unpunished mean. So so, so here's what Paul is thinking. Here's the, the, the thought experiment we need to go through. Think of God... Standing before a bar of justice. Now this is, don't blaspheme as you're, as you're thinking this, because there's no higher bar of justice than God. But, but let's say there's someone who is going to hold God accountable for everything that he's done and how he's managed the universe. And, and he looks at what God has done before Jesus came and he said, look, here's all these people and you're forgiving them. You can't do that. And God says, but I do forgive them. And, 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 and the, and the accuser says, you can't forgive them. You can't just forgive. You're not holding them responsible for their sin. You're not holy. You are not just. And God, before Jesus came, would have had to say, it looks like that, doesn't it? But I'm not just forgiving. There's someone coming who is going to make it possible for me to actually forgive. This is what it means that when Jesus came, it demonstrates the righteousness of God because God had passed over former sins. But, you know, he hadn't just passed over former sins. His forgiveness of people in the past was always based on what Christ could do. It wasn't based on the sacrifices that they were making at the time. They're offering bulls and goats and lambs. But those can't can't substitute for a man. And the book of Hebrews tells us that. The book of Hebrews tells us that all those sacrifices in in the past, let's think about it, the blood of bulls and goats cannot take away sin. Offering a lamb to die in your place is not a substitute for human sin. Who has to die for human sin? A human does. We're the ones who are responsible. Sin is a human problem and it requires a human solution. That's the only thing that will balance the scales of justice for God. God knows, though, we cannot pay that price. And so what does he do? He sends his son, a man. God in the flesh, of course, but a man, nevertheless, who can die on our behalf. He can take away the wrath of God. He can satisfy God's justice. And God and Jesus 
the Son of God, the Holy Spirit, the three, the triune one God, they take care of our problem for us without compromising the holiness or the dignity or the significance of who God is. And he does so in a manner that exalts his glory because he is seen to be just, righteous, holy, and compassionate and mercy beyond anything that we could ever imagine. The gospel is so is so good, it has to be true, doesn't it? Who, who would have thought this up? Who would have thought this up? And, and if you are here this morning and you do not understand yourself to be a Christian, then you need to recognize that, that, that you need to be forgiven by God. And there is nothing that you can do to accomplish that on your own. But that desire to be forgiven is God's prompting in your heart to come to him, confess your sins, repent, and believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, and you will be saved. You will be forgiven totally, completely. That is the promise of the gospel. You see, Paul here in this passage is addressing not the question, how can God justly punish sinners? The question that ought to perplex us as we read through the Bible and are confronted with this holy God is, how can God justly forgive anyone? he can and he does but it's costly it's costly the forgiven are free at great cost for the forgiven freedom comes by grace through faith but the forgiven dare not think that salvation is cheap it is costly there is a cost to be paid and that cost is absorbed by God at his initiative we read that right God put forward Jesus Christ The gospel offers freedom, doesn't it? If we return to our parable in Matthew 18, we recognize that though the king was perfectly in his rights to throw the man in prison, moved by compassion, he releases the man. The man doesn't escape or get off. There's there's no merit in this man either. The driving force to the forgiveness of the debt, it's not a miscarriage of justice. It's compassion. The same kind of compassion from the heart that moved Jesus time after time. The debt was forgiven by the king who was the only one in a position to absolutely forgive the debt. He would pay it. He would balance the books out of his own treasury. The debt is really and truly gone now. Not papered over, not passed on to someone else. It's been paid for. It's over. This is the heart of the gospel, isn't it? Our forgiveness is rooted in the compassion of God, not in our merit. That's fundamental to the gospel, and the rest of the parable will bear this out. Read verses 28 through 30. When that servant went out, he found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred denarii. He grabbed him, began to choke him. Pay back what you owe me, he demanded. His fellow servant fell to his knees and begged him, be patient with me. And I will pay you back. But he refused. Instead, he went off and had the man thrown into prison until he could pay his debt. Now, the man is forgiven. The first servant is forgiven this incredible debt. But something's wrong. He immediately uses that freedom, grounded in the grace and mercy of the king who has forgiven him much, to find the one who owed him money. The amount owed by the fellow slave, it's it's still a significant amount of money. Represents a hundred days of earnings by a common laborer. But let's be honest, it's a trifling amount compared to what he was just forgiven. The second slave, the servant, he grovels, he appeals to his creditor, and the language is the same that was used by the first slave to the king. He ought to have recognized it (laughs) because he said basically the same thing. Have pity on me and I will repay you. Whereas the first slave ludicrously offers to repay everything the second slave is is less specific and probably a little more realistic in his promise even though this debt is easily within his reach or more more nearly within his reach well the king finds out verse 31 when the other servants saw what had happened they were greatly distressed went and told their master everything that had happened then the master called the servant in you wicked servant he said I canceled all that debt of yours because you begged me to. 
Since you have had mercy on your fellow servant just as I had on you. In anger, his master turned him over to the jailers to be tortured until he should pay back all that he owed. I mean, the shocking part of this story is his failure to exercise toward the fellow slave even a little of the generosity with which he himself had been treated. If the king had insisted on his rights, there would have been no mercy whatsoever. And so he expects the same of his servant. The king had absolute rights and forgave freely. The steward had relatively few rights, yet refused to forgive. This is the basic message of the parable. Once we've experienced God's merciful forgiveness, it is mandatory that we show the same forgiveness to others. This is what life in the kingdom of God is like. The master, the king, was willing to forgive a debt the slave could have never repaid, but will not forgive his refusal of an act of generosity which was within the slave's power. If he, if he is determined to insist on just desserts, well, he will have them. The forgiveness that was freely granted is now withdrawn by the king. Not because the slave is any more likely to pay the debt, but because he has proved that he completely misunderstood and doubted his master's heart and mercy. And this time it's worse. In place of being sold, he's just going to be tortured. Jesus gives the verdict. This is how my heavenly father will treat each of you unless you forgive your brother from your heart. You see, the forgiven in the kingdom of God are expected to forgive. If mercy is characteristic of God, it should also be characteristic of God's people. Conversely, when God's people do not show mercy, they ought, they ought not expect to receive it. God, whose generosity is beyond measure, will nonetheless not forgive the unforgiving. Those who will not forgive must not expect to be forgiven. The measure they give will be the measure they get back. Jesus said so. Sermon on the Mount. About five and a half years ago, I think, through that. We find in this that a forgiving heart is evidence of being forgiven. I, do you remember when Jesus was teaching his disciples how to pray? In, the, in what we call now the Lord's Prayer. Jesus instructed them to pray. If you forgive others, there, and, and, and then he summarizes at the end, forgive us as we have forgiven those who trespass against us. Then he explains it. He says, if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. See, forgiveness and mercy are essential aspects of living in the kingdom. Those who refuse to do so will not be shown forgiveness or mercy. James says the same thing in James chapter 2, verse 13. For judgment is without mercy to one who has shown no mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. Now, now why is this? Why would Jesus say this? I mean, I thought, what, what isn't it once saved, always saved? Isn't there like eternal security? If, if, if you are bought and and regenerated by Christ and the Holy Spirit and God the Father, are, are we in trouble if we forget to forgive? Well, this is a warning, isn't it? And it's a warning that we ought to take to heart. And the logic is rooted in understanding the gospel. Now, we might be motivated to root forgiveness in some sort of sentimentality. Or, or example, look how much God forgave you. Why can't you do likewise? But, but that's not really what this parable is about. It's not about sentimentality. It's really about the good news of Christ's death and resurrection. It's for this reason that the gospel enables God to forgive us. Christ turned away the wrath of God. Christ paid a real debt in our place. That's how God is able to forgive us. God doesn't just forgive. That's how he's able to do so. It's that same gospel message that ought to enable us to forgive others. Now, I know as a Christian how I forgive others, but if I were not a Christian, I really honestly don't know how I could actually forgive in the way that the Bible speaks of it. Why? What is it to forgive? Basically, again, it's to relinquish your right to punish, refusal to take vengeance. It's a refusal to 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 obligate the person to pay the debt back that they owe you. 
Now, we could just forgive, I suppose. We could just forgive and say something like, oh, that's okay. But what are we saying when we do that? What we're saying is this. You know, I, I really don't care if there's ever any balancing to the scales of justice, and it really doesn't matter to me that there is. I'm just going to forgive. Now, most people would, many people out, you know, maybe outside the walls of the church would say that's how they forgive. But I don't think they can actually consciously do that. Let's be honest. I don't think that's the way the universe works, and I think they know it. There's got to be a balancing to the scales of justice. And when someone hurts me, it hurts. And I can say, ah, oh, it doesn't matter. But you know what? It does matter. It does matter. And I know that that's not what God does. Remember, God demands that we put vengeance in his hands. He'll take care of this. God is able to forgive because Christ paid the penalty for our sin. You, if you are a follower of Jesus, you're able to forgive for the same reason. Christ paid the penalty for that sin. And it's for this reason that forgiveness is supposed to be reciprocal. Here, God's forgiveness comes first. It comes to you. Will it be withdrawn when a person forgiven fails to forgive another? Well, there's the warning. Don't do that. To ask to be forgiven while oneself refusing to forgive is absolutely hypocritical. It reveals that at best we do not understand the basis of our forgiveness. At worst, it betrays a lack of understanding or belief in the gospel itself. Does that make sense? This is what is at stake here. So what do we do with this? Just a few things to consider with regard to forgiveness. Be quick to forgive. Be generous with the forgiveness freely given you. You see, that the heart of forgiveness is my personal act to release the one who has sinned against me from my personal rights to collect on that moral debt. Instead of hurting him, I can absorb that into myself. I can take that because I'm in Christ. You see, the Lord never lets sin go unpunished. He'll take care of it. And if it's the sin of a brother or sister in Christ, especially, it's already been taken care of, hasn't it? It's taken care of at the cross. God forgives completely those who accept Christ's gift of salvation. Now, how does that impact me? Well, let's say, and, and I think I might have even used this illustration before, but it bears repeating because I think it's a good one. Um, I, I don't usually give bad illustrations or ones that I think are bad anyway. If there's some conflict between my wife and I, and, and, and this is kind of hypothetical because like 99% of the conflict between my wife and I is my fault, but, but, but let's say that it's her fault one time. Um, let, let's just pretend that it's her fault. Now, 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 I as a Christian, I know that my sins are forgiven. I know that my sins are forgiven on the basis of the gospel of Christ. But if I, for, if I refuse to forgive my wife, what am I really saying? I'm saying, um, Lord, I know that you forgave my sins on the basis of what Christ did, but, but that penalty on the cross that Christ paid for me, that was sufficient for me, it's not sufficient for her. I'm going to make her pay a little bit. Yeah, Christ's blood did an awful lot, but um, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to be silent and rude. I think that will balance the scales just a little bit more. You know? We laugh at that, but isn't that what we're doing? Isn't that really what we're doing when we refuse to forgive another? Be quick to forgive. Be generous with the forgiveness freely given you. And also do this. Be quick to seek forgiveness. It's the strong dynamic of seeking and granting forgiveness that enables the church, the body of Christ, to survive and to thrive. And, and, and men, I'm talking to the men, the males here especially. I think this is especially important for us. Part of being a leader in the home and the family and the church is seeking the peace of the family. And, and, and I walk into the home at times, and I, it's amazing to me how much power and influence I have because my wife can, will, might have been able to do a great job of, of keeping things, of, of creating peace, but I can walk in and with just a few words just destroy it all. Power, man. <laughs> great power for evil is what that is. So you know what I think godly men do? I think they apologize a lot. They apologize a lot. I think that's part of being a leader. You, you humble yourself and you go and you say, I am sorry. I tried to tell my boys. That's what men do. Men apologize. Men seek the peace of relationships and they take the initiative to do it even when you don't think it's your fault. Because you know what? It probably was. But, but, and, and, and if it wasn't totally, it probably was a little bit. 
Seek the peace. Apologize for what you can. And, and it's amazing what that will do. Men, fathers, go to your children and apologize to them. Go to your wives, apologize to them. In the church, go seek reconciliation and restoration. Be quick to seek forgiveness. That brings up another question. Well, well, what about if people don't apologize? Do I have to forgive them if they don't come to me and seek forgiveness? And, and, And I know that I've heard some people say that, no, you don't have to forgive them, but I don't know what the option is. What's the option? Be bitter? I mean, that's not life in the kingdom. I can be released from the personal bitterness and resentment because I trust God to work justice. God will either take care of it at the cross or for those who don't avail themselves of that, he'll take care of it on the day of judgment. What is my being petty going to add to that? What's the point? It just tears me up inside. God's justice is far better than mine. Christians ought to be able to forgive others, even if they don't ask, because we recognize that God has already balanced the books that were against us. I don't want God to refuse to forgive me because I forget to confess a certain sin. Maybe I should grant that same grace to others. Now, there's lots of other questions. Does that mean I have to stay in an abusive relationship? I'll just say no, and then we'll move on. And (laughs) we can flesh that out, the details of it. But by and large, be forgiving. Be forgiving. Seek restoration. Seek reconciliation. Because there's a difference between forgiveness and restoration. There is. Being forgiven matters. If I'm forgiven, that doesn't mean that I'm absolutely and, and, and totally restored to where I was before the sin com- was committed. There's a morally significant difference between forgiveness and restoration. Forgiveness is freely given. Restoration takes time, and it's earned, and it's earned. Being forgiven matters. Three most powerful words, I think, in the English language. I forgive you. They are the words that we need to hear from each other. They're the words that we long to hear from our great God and judge. And once we have heard them from him, we have to be generous in speaking them to others. Let me pray. Father in heaven, thank you for the grace that is available in the Lord Jesus Christ. We acknowledge that you are holy and you are just and righteous and you forgive others mercifully and you give forgiveness to us freely as far as we're concerned but we know that it costs you much give us the grace to understand that and the grace to believe that and the grace to respond appropriately father may we be as generous as we can possibly be with forgiveness because you have been as generous as you could be bless us to that end in jesus name amen